0: Welcome to Inflection Points, where in each episode we talk about the pivotal moments in the careers of tech leaders that help them navigate a new path to growth. My name is Joe Hine, and this week we speak with Timothy Amu, founder of Fanbytes. In this episode, we discuss his strong sense of self and how that pulled him out of a difficult upbringing, how mentally leveling up unlocked growth for Fanbytes, selling his business to BrainLabs, and how to speak to white people. From SI Partners, this is Inflection Points. My guest today is Timothy Amu, co-founder of Fanbytes, one of the UK's leading Gen Z social media and influencer marketing agencies. He sold the business to BrainLabs in 2022. His business has created impactful work for the likes of H&M, Burger King, and Samsung, to name but a few. He started his first business age 17 and has founded two since. Timo, welcome to Inflection Points.
1: Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks. Should be fun, let's roll.
0: So look, let's dive straight in. Uh, So you're 28? Yes. You founded three businesses, you've sold two? Yep. It's an amazing resume, I'm intrigued. What drives you?
1: What drives Timothy Amu? Um, What drives me? I think maybe at the beginning, what drove me was I felt that I needed to achieve something of significance to 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 do that, because I thought there was always something I could do significant in the world and business was kind of the vehicle for that. And then I think. And then it became more about just the game of business and just the competition. That's where it got really exciting. I think the idea of learning new skills and becoming a new person was something which I really, really enjoyed. And so that's really what it became as I got, quote, more successful.
0: Yeah, okay. So it's just that evolution, that drive for the next thing and what's what's new.
1: Exactly, exactly. I think that's what kind of, most entrepreneurs probably are driven by, at the beginning, I think most entrepreneurs are driven by some kind of significance or money or something like that. For me, it was both significance and money. (laughs) And then it actually just became, you know, just the love of the game really of just uh, solving problems and building teams and all that.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: So I want to
0: start talking about your inflection points and I want to sort of wind it back to when you were 16 and and a real sort of uh, formative experience in your life you, you know you were at state school yeah uh 16 years of old and you had an opportunity to move to to private school yeah can
1: you describe what
0: school was like before
1: so i grew up on the oakland road I, I grew up and i've said this a few times i grew up on like the fourth floor council estate Oaken road and i lived there with My dad, um, not exactly the most ideal place to live, but I always kind of had this feeling that I deserved different and I was going to be something a bit different. And I think beforehand, school was interesting. So from year seven to about year 10, I think I didn't have a good sense of self. I Mm. think, uh, you know, being in that school, I went to a school called City of London Academy. It was in Southwark. And, you know, you had all the mandem (laughs) go there, basically, right? So people from Peckham, from Brixton, from Oaken Road. And it was so weird because at some point, like, Peckham, Brixton, and Oaken Road were all, like, in gang war against each other. So it was such a bizarre thing. People would be in the same class and on one side the person knows who stabbed the other person. It's just, it just does not make any sense. So before that, I think I didn't have a good sense of self. I think it's not that I was hanging out with those people, but it's also almost, I was just going along with things, but I always had this sense of being different and all that. And then I think in year 11 was when I had a greater sense of self, when I thought, hang on a second, like, I am smarter than these people. And actually, It doesn't require a lot of effort to be smarter than these people, and that's when I really went into overdrive. With I wanted to be the smart person, and so you know, for GCSEs, I did well. I got um, I got eight A stars and one A, and that was just because I just was like, hang on, this is this is not the way I wanted my life to go. And I think I'm smarter than these people. So therefore, I'm going to kind of put more effort in and just train my brain up. And um, and then, yeah, as you mentioned, sixth form, I had the opportunity to go to actually three different schools. And I chose the Christ Hospital, the boarding school. And I chose it primarily because it was a boarding school. And I had kind of dreams of going to boarding school and, you know, the whole Harry Potter style vibes. (laughs) And and for your listeners, for anyone who's actually has heard of Christ Hospital, they would be aware of 16th century gown. We'd march into lunch every day. Wow. And a big part of it was I wanted to be transported out of the world I was in, you know. I I actually hated living in a council estate. I hated those sort of things. I felt I was more and I felt... I could be more. And so going to boarding school was my way of not only, I guess, from a social mobility perspective, um, moving out, but also just mentally surrounding myself with people who thought bigger, operated bigger, um, rather than just being content with just being the smart person amongst people who don't dream sure. big.
0: It's, it's uh, you know, the proverbial you know, big fish in a small pond to, to, to changing the size of the pond. Right. Um, and you know, what was, what, what changed for you? You know, kind of what, what impact did this have on
1: you? Man, um, so many things. So before I went to Christ hospital, I had a very juvenile understanding of just how the world works and mm. specifically I had a very juvenile understanding of things like wealth. And in my mind, it was, you're either Paul or you're Richard Branson. So right. there, there was no in between because I didn't know anyone who was, who had like significant money, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think going to Christ Hospital, fortunately enough, I got a scholarship from there, but going there, you know, the fee was 27 grand a year right? And for international students, they were paying double. So that means there were some people who were basically paying 54 grand a year. And their whole perspective on just how to operate was just bigger. Yeah, And so I think it introduced me to a new way of just seeing the world. It introduced me to a new way of understanding specifically the different layers of wealth. So something I've said before is I remember, so the way Crash Hospital worked was every three weeks, you'd be able to kind of go back home, see family, and then you come back over that weekend. And I remember one weekend I was waiting to go and I just heard this sound. It was like, and I was like, what the heck is going on? And I looked and it was a helicopter. And a helicopter had basically uh, come on the rugby field to pick up a kid. No way. Who lived in Austria, I believe. And I remember thinking, Jesus freaking Christ. Like there are people <laughs> who are not Elon Musk, who are not Richard Branson, who have helicopters to pick up their kids. And that just kind of made me very aware of the whole idea of, oh, there's there are different levels to wealth and income which do not require you to be like a billionaire or anything like that. And then probably the second thing, I know we're talking about like this particular point, but a key thing for me, as I mentioned earlier, was in my state school, I was by and large the smartest person though, at least like top three there, right? Like in the whole school. But then I but then I went to Christ hospital. And then I met people who at like 15 and 16 had just finished their further math A-level and already had guaranteed places in Oxford. And I was like, all right, so the intellect game is not a game I can win. And it's not a game because you've had already a massive head start. So that's what even drove me even further to try and win the business game. And that was where I then launched my, um, I launched my second, but really my first, like sensible yeah, yeah. Sure. company there. Yeah,
0: <laughs> nice,
1: very good. And
0: uh, I, I forgot to ask: How does how did the opportunity come about? Like, you know, you are uh, this kid, you're at state school in, you know, kind of a, a particular part of London that there isn't a lot of opportunity. But then you've managed to put yourself in a different environment. Like, what inspired that?
1: That just even being aware of that. So I specifically remember where I heard about Christ Hospital. I was at my cousin's birthday and my auntie um, just said, oh, you should meet this guy. He goes to this school called Christ Hospital. And I just found out about it and I thought, okay, this is cool. Then I looked on the site and I was really taken in by how it seemed like its own world. Yeah, And it was a way for me to kind of get out of my current world to experience a whole new world. Cause I also got offers from Dulwich College and Elaine's and some other private schools. So I had a bunch of, you know, all like all of them scholarships and all that stuff, but I didn't want to go to like a private day school. Yeah, I wanted to go to a boarding school to like leave mentally and physically where I was. So that's the way that it happened.
0: That, to get that immersion, I guess, in that different environment. Yeah, exactly and, exactly. and do you believe this set you on a on a different course, in you know, to enable you to be where you are today?
1: So I think it did, but in but almost in reverse. So, Christ Hospital was good for mentally me being able to understand there's different levels, but I didn't actually really enjoy Christ Hospital because they had a they had so many rules, you know, being a boarding school, they had so many rules and I didn't like any of the rules and, you know, we'd march into lunch every day and all that stuff. And I just, I just didn't like it. So what ended up happening was I think that it drove me to be a lot more independent, but not by virtue of the school and following the rules, but more like, I don't think the rules, Apply to me in school. Yeah. Therefore, I don't think the rules of life apply to me. You know. Um, yeah. So, how to do things was that, and I think that I also had a slight chip on my shoulder. Like, Joe, there are some, there were some insanely smart people there. Yeah. yeah. And I had a chip on my shoulder, which was like, you guys have all played the academia game, but I'm going to show you. How to really play the like the proper game of business and life and all that stuff. Yeah. Indirectly it helped me, but not so much getting in there. Um there. Um, and then there's actually a final point, just before we go to the next one, is this is something I've said with friends, and I have never said this on a podcast before. So this is an exclusive. And we can keep this in, or we can't. But I think going to Christ Hospital also taught me how to speak to white people. Okay. Well, intro, (laughs) like, uh, let's delve a bit deeper. What what do you mean by that? So there is a certain way in terms of the topics to talk about, in terms of being well-read, in terms of just understanding how to conduct yourself in certain spaces, which I think only comes by being in certain spaces. And if you are someone who, for example, for me, you know, most of my friends were black or Asian. And there wasn't that kind of understanding of how to conduct yourself, not in a bad way, but more in just, we don't, we didn't know what to discuss. Right. And how to understand that actually, you know, things like doing favors for people to help you, you being of value to someone else, you just networking with people just to network and not actually wanting something directly from them. That was a second order consequence of going to Christ Hospital because not only did I see people doing that and go, huh, I wonder why they just randomly meet up every week and just talk about ideas. That's not something that I, that's not something that I do. Or I wonder why, you know, you know, Joe introduced Peter to Sam just because he knew Peter and Sam, you know? So um, it's almost
0: kind of working out a a different culture or a different, a different subset of culture that, that kind of has allowed you more opportunity as a consequence, right?
1: Yeah, 100%. 100, 100, 100%.
0: So interesting. Wow. Thank you. Thanks for the exclusive, Timo. (laughs) Timo, moving on to your, you know, the second and next phase in your life. Uh, You were at university, were you, when you started Fanbytes?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was uh, second year at uni.
0: So this is 2017. What problem had you spotted that you were trying to solve?
1: So I saw the rise of influencer marketing and... My thesis was always, anytime there is some kind of independent marketing channel, it always starts off by itself and then it becomes consolidated. Mm. And I just saw that and I thought, right, this is the wave we're going to ride. But also before I had uh, started Fanbytes, I'd started a business in uh, sixth form, Entrepreneur Express, which was just an online publication. And that was bought by this American company called Horizon Media. And basically, they used to be like a media company and now they've changed to just being an agency. But um, they bought the publication, but they also bought a bunch of the Facebook pages around the publication. And that was the thing that was hugely valuable for them. Mm. So I'd always then realised, hmm, this like social communities and social pages, that's where it's really happening. So when I then kind of saw the rise of influencers and all that stuff, I thought, right, that is the execution. Like that is the wave to ride. It is the wave mm. of influences. I already have some degree of success to understand that social is very important. And at some point brands would want to tap into this new wave of influences. We should help them to do that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, the business grew Fanbytes started to have a bit of success. Um, and your second inflection point happened when you, you got to about 15 people or so within the organization. Tell me what happened next.
1: So I think there, I then realized that everything that I'd known about business was a lie. Um, fundamentally <laughs> what I mean was at 15 people, I came to realize that it could no longer just be the Timo show. And I think that was where I had to. I had to mentally level up, but I also had to shirk my ego, because when I was younger, when I was starting fan bites at twenty one, all the stories I'd read about successful companies all focused on the one sole person. Yeah. Right. So you think about Zuckerberg, and you yeah. don't think about Sheryl Sandberg, even Bill Gates. Yeah, he had Paul Allen, but everyone just talks about Bill Gates. Yeah. So I think that at that point, I kind of came to realize if I want the business to grow and to keep scaling and to keep growing, you know, when we saw the company had 75 people, if I want the business to keep growing and scaling, I need to get rid of it needing to be me at the forefront and understand how to become a better leader. And the reason why that's an inflection point is because that was almost... That was a very hard thing because I'd mm. spent so many years living and making decisions on a default mode, which was like it is the I have to do this. I have to be at the forefront. I have to be the person making yeah. these decisions. Yeah, yeah. And then to unpack that, that was a very key one.
0: And how did you come to that conclusion? What because that, that's a key moment of realization for a lot of
1: a lot of um, leaders in
0: businesses that you can't do it all by yourself and and that you need to you need to build that team. What, what was it that triggered that realisation that you needed to make that change?
1: One of my biggest regrets with Fanbytes is actually a particular employee, Brett. And Brett was really good. Brett was right. Brett was incredible. And I let my ego get in the way and Brett left the company. And I remember just maybe one or two weeks afterwards, this other girl who was my friend and then I ended up hiring for Fanbytes as well. Um, she said, man we lost a good one. Mm. And I just thought to myself, you're like, you're categorically right. Like Brett was insanely intelligent, insanely smart driven. And because of my reluctance to kind of let go, Mm. I lost him. And I thought, well, there's no way that I'm going to self-sabotage, which was Mm. pretty much what it was. I was sabotaging my success because I wanted to be the person. And I think, you know, something like Brett happening, I went, right, you need to shape up.
0: So interesting.
1: And then how did you
0: maintain that growth, right? You know, you, for the next six years, you were, you know, on quite a ride.
1: So when people ask me this, one of the things I say is I genuinely do not know. The only thing that I do know, and I remember when the business was acquired, I remember saying to Ambrose, my co-founder saying, it's funny. There was never a time in our, in our journey that we thought the business would fail. Mm. It was just not even something that we entertained. It was just like, well, obviously this business is going to sell at some point. And I think almost that naivety of, well, there is no other option, so let's just operate as if there is no other option, really drove us. Because there were so many times where things were hard, but we never thought about doing something else. And so the answer to your question is, I almost don't know categorically how we went through it. We just went through it because it just felt like, well, this is what we kind of have to do to get to the end goal. So we just yeah, went yeah. through it.
0: I, I, do you know, it's that blind faith uh, I've often heard, uh, entrepreneurialism described as almost like a religion. You just have to, you have to believe in it, right. Yeah. You, you know, kind of at, at, at any cost, you you know, this is the right path and this is the path I'm going to, I'm going to go on and keep going. It yeah. sounds like that was very much where you were.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh,
0: interesting. Um, and so look, just kind of thinking about where the market is now, you know, what are the most significant ways that Gen Z influencer marketing sort of changed since you were in 2017 to, to where you are now?
1: A couple of things. I think a lot of people are talking about micro-influencers and all that stuff. And that's true. But I think a better way to put it is more niche influencers. So mm. micro-influencers is primarily around the size of the influencers. But I think the biggest trend is more niche influencers. So rather than thinking you know, of sport influencers, rather there are now tennis influencers and now there is table tennis influencers and now there are people who the whole thing is not even about playing table tennis it's just about your form so you end up being as niche as niche in a niche in a niche in a niche and that is very exciting because that actually means that if you're building brands or building companies in that space your go-to-market with influencers is not just based off I guess that like tier one or that level one thinking of influencers actually there's a lot more depth
0: yeah no no i I can see that happening in the conversations that that we have as well right it's there's definitely an evolution in this in this space um to
1: your mind what what makes a great influencer agency focus on a specific category right you know with fanbites we focused on being the gen z experts yeah and that was one reason why we absolutely, you know, dominated in the space. And I think the second one is constantly innovative. Yeah. You know, when we first started the business, no one had heard of TikTok. No one had heard of these type of things. But in 2019, 2020, when it started to become a thing, we then really leapt on that. Um We also built a TikTok house, the Byte House. We got six TikTokers to come together and live in one house and it created an absolute PR storm. It was constantly innovating because brands and companies want to constantly be at the forefront. And if you have a company that is keeping them at the forefront, that's the way that you would win. And then I think the final point on that is so many, not only influence agencies, just generally marketing companies, do not spend enough time marketing themselves. Yeah. And at FanBytes, you know, if anyone Googled FanBytes, you would be bombarded by PR <laughs> galore everywhere. But that's yeah. not because we were out there trying to be like, look at how good we are. It was actually because when we produce good things, when we produce good work, we shouted about it more. And so we then became thought leaders in the space. And so I think. Even things like we launched something called the FanBytes Fund, you know, as a black person in 2020, when everything was going on with George Floyd, I was like, okay, enough with the panels, enough with the conferences, actually let's drive some meaningful change. So then what I did was I, I just emailed a bunch of our angel investors and I said, hey, I would like to, I will personally put in 10 grand of my own money and I would like to ask you guys to also put in some money and we will fund influencer campaigns for Black-owned businesses. And within two weeks, we had raised hundreds of thousands to basically do that. And then we just funded a bunch of the companies. Fantastic. So I think that kind of not just doing the plain Jane, simple things, but really constantly innovating, constantly putting your best foot forward and letting other people know that you've put your best foot forward is really a core differentiator. If you're building not only an agency, not only an influence agency, but any type of service-based business to other brands or companies.
0: And so after six years of growth, we come to your next inflection point, uh, <laughs> the one and it's relatively recent so you sold Fanbytes to brain labs in 2022 yeah uh where was the business at that point in time and, and what made you what led you to that decision
1: well the business was growing incredibly still you know on average we we're growing 150 percent every year um for the last six years which is pretty insane growth to just keep doing that definitely but i think it was almost a case of well So remember earlier I spoke about that with every new market, every new channel, it starts off as a silo and then afterwards it then kind of gets consolidated. Yeah. I could tell that what brands and companies were looking for was consolidation. They were looking not just to work with an influencer agency here, then a paid social agency here, then an SEO agency here. They were looking for that one partner to be able to do that. Right. So in October 20, oh, I think in September, October 2021, we'd been approached already by a few companies who were interested in doing something. But then I thought, mm, these guys don't feel right. And actually perhaps the fact that we've been approached so many times is an indicator to, to, begin a process. And so that's when we then began a process. That's when we then met a bunch of banks. That's when we then chose SI and then subsequently there. So I think it was a combination of the market saying, right, it's time for consolidation. This is what companies want. And also me going, well, for fan bites at that stage, as I was saying, um, 75 people, at that stage, for us to drive on to the next level of growth, for this vehicle to drive on to the next level of growth, it needs to be inside of a larger company who has like a global presence. And so yeah. um that was those were the two things that really drove the decision.
0: The big drivers. And so it sounds like you had you had choice, right? You know, there was there was a number of people that were interested in the business. Yeah. You know, how do you make that decision? How do you decide who to partner with, right?
1: So before I, I guess, got into this stage of uh, building and selling a company, I used to always think that when people said it was about the people, it was just the most full-gazy thing ever, right? That's thought, come on, man, just, <laughs> just say it's about the money, bro, you know? Um, um, and in our case, I generally believe that, you know, we had, I think, Three other companies put in bids, and Brain Labs were one of the companies that, when we met the team, when I met Dan Gilbert, I thought, "Oh, you get it." Like, yeah. And there's also something to be said for a company where the CEO is still the founder, the founders still the CEO. Okay. Even at the level Brain Labs were, where I think at that time they had 900 people. Mm. And there was something in there where I thought, yeah, this makes sense. And I also liked the fact that they complemented, you know, fan bites doing influencer brand social. Yeah. And they just being ridiculously good at performance marketing. And I was like, well, bring brand social and influencer, bring brand social and performance together. And it's just a, um, a, 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 recipe made of heaven or whatever the phrase is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that definitely formed a part of it, um, just knowing that the next stage of growth would be in good hands. And yes, of course, like the money played a role, etc. but by and large, everyone was roughly around the same kind of price anyway. So really it came just down to the people, right? And so uh, that's, where, that's where it got really interesting.
0: Yeah, as it so often does in life, it's it's all about people. Yeah, AI is it's not going to take over everything just
1: yet. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, But you know, six years of your life, uh, you know, built in your early twenties, um, you know, so a, a significant part of your life was fan bites, right? Yep. Uh, well, my whole life,
1: pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Yeah, my and whole twenties so, was fan bites.
0: Right. So. Uh, okay how describe the emotions that you kind of went through when you go through that process to, to to sell the business where you once would have sat and signed a piece of paper now obviously it's a bunch of clicks but
1: <laughs> what, what, what's what went through your head as you went through the process so one of the things i did and i may release this but 30 days Up until the day That we signed Every day I would Go on my phone And I will Record a Voice memo To myself About how I felt No way And it's like And it's so funny Because You can tell The seesaw Of emotions (laughs) (laughs) One day I'm like Oh my god This is so amazing And then the other day I'm like For flip's sake I'm like These guys need to Send over the document And then I'm like swearing and shit Um (laughs) Um but um yeah so I think firstly it was definitely a roller coaster of emotions but I had spoken to a bunch of people who had also sold their companies and one of the things they said was it's very important not to see your business as your baby and I think they told me this like way earlier probably I don't know 18 months before we even thought about it. But that always stuck with me because I thought, look, I'm, you know, I'm 20 something. I'll probably start another three, four businesses in my lifetime. Fanbytes is a great an incredible um, platform business to then go do other things. It's now, you know, giving you uh, like a great financial cushion to go do other things and all that stuff. And so I think when I internalized that, I actually was not that emotionally kind of invested but that's because I was able to be quite objective about it initially I was very emotionally tied to fan bites if things were going bad at fan bites I was just an absolute miserable man and if things were going great I was also the happiest person on earth <laughs>
0: yeah. and
1: that is unhealthy and so um going through the process I think I was very detached I think it helped also, again, I mean, this is not, um, you haven't paid me to say this, but, um, <laughs> but I think that the team who worked, you know, like Tristan, Lauren, were very, I don't know how to explain it, like, they were so objective about things and unflappable that I thought, well, if they're not worried, then I'm not worried, right? Yeah. The worst thing is if your M&A banker or something calls you and it's like, oh my God, <laughs> it's happening. That's where you should be worried. But I think there was such a level-headedness, not only about them, but also our uh, lawyers. In fact, I actually think that I sent them a text at the end of last year to all of them. and And I said, look, like, regardless of the uh, the money involved like actually thanks for just being such a stable person throughout this process cuz i hear a lot of my friends who have sold their companies and they say it was so stressful and there was so much turmoil and i'm like well i didn't feel any of that so yeah that was that was the range of emotions that i went through
0: yeah yeah well like and, and a phenomenal achievement uh, at such a young age congratulations thanks um, So like one final question after looking back, want to look forward and, you know, what is exciting you about the next 12 months?
1: What is exciting me? Um, One of the things that I tried to do was look at all the things that I had done wrong in the past and how that could inform the future. So um, there's a document I have on my phone in my notes, which is, um, Things that I effed up on, <laughs> basically. And it's just this long list. I think right now I'm like number 115 or something. It's just like so many things, right? So I don't think there's a specific space that's interesting or, or a specific thing. I think I am just very interested in the fact that any subsequent thing I do, I would be able to play the game on why call cheat mode, right? Because not only would I have the financial cushion, but it'd be easier to raise money if I wanted to. I would understand the game even more. Um, and because I would be able to understand the game even more, I would be able to reverse engineer the game um, more, right? So it's like, okay, Um, let's say you say, I want to build a company to 100 million. Okay, well, what sort of business gets to that level? All right, they are typically valued on this. All right, what are the levers to pull to get to that? So that kind of understanding the game is where I'm really excited by. But to be honest, nothing really major at the moment. Um, I'm enjoying kind of working with the, leadership guys at brain labs and just kind of giving the strategic advice required to ensure that they keep growing as a rocket ship so that's really exciting uh but definitely this idea of playing the game on cheat mode is probably it's probably the the most exciting thing for the next five to ten years
0: cool it sounds fantastic good luck timo thank you ever so much for coming on today and thank you for for sharing your stories
1: no problemo thanks for having me
0: Inflection Points is a production of SI Partners. SI Partners is a leading corporate finance boutique for agencies, consultancies, and technology providers at the forefront of the digital economy. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Joe Hine, and you've been listening to Inflection Points.